invite you to turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3. If that's not uh, a book that uh, your Bible automatically opens to, uh, I would say the easiest way to find it, go to Matthew and then turn back a couple of pages. So it's towards the end of the Old Testament. Beginning next week, we'll be uh, starting what will be essentially most of our, our summer series, at least Camper and I, while as we are speaking, we'll be working through Jesus' I Am statements as we root ourselves in the identity of Christ, our, our God. Now, we'll also be blessed to have others who will be speaking this summer to us, um, and, uh, and so they'll, they'll bring uh, the word to us in, in, from a number of, of different passages. Uh, but we were going to begin this week, but our service ended up being so packed, we thought we would do something a little different. We wouldn't be able to do justice to the passage. And so my intent this morning is for us really to prepare ourselves for this table with an extended uh, meditation and preparation in what I would consider one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Old Testament, if not all of the Scripture, which is found here in Zechariah 3. And again, Zechariah is not a, pa- a book that regularly gets preached from. You may not be aware much about Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet during what's known as the post-exilic period, which simply means he was part of the group that came back after the exile in Babylon. He was a member of a family that came early under the governorship of Zerubbabel, and then about 20 years after they had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild, uh, Zechariah was writing as a contemporary of the prophet Haggai. Zechariah was writing to a people who came with great uh, excitement. And now after 20 years, the excitement had turned more to frustration and to disappointment. People weren't sure what their future was. And Zechariah was God's messenger to speak to them. Part of God's message to them was the beauty of the vision that he had given to him that we will consider here uh, this morning. The text that we'll look at is Zechariah 3 read through that, ask the Lord to speak to us, and then we'll break it up and and just kind of work our way through this passage this morning so that we would be able to see the beauty of the picture that the Lord has given to his people, how that applies to us and prepares our hearts to come and receive God's gift of this table. Zechariah 3, beginning our reading in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. 
Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The word of the Lord. Let's go to our God in prayer. Our Father, as we come now to this time of considering your word, we pray that you would be at work and by your spirit you would speak to us. Don't leave us merely to our own understanding, our own intellectual capacity, and even our own diligence in study, but that the facts that we see revealed here would speak to the appropriate parts of our lives. You would speak to our very hearts. That we would have a clearer picture of who you are and what you're like. Be reminded of what you have done for us and even of who we are. Lord, as we come, we pray that you would use this word to shape our minds, affect our hearts, shape and direct our steps. You've promised that you would be at work. So Lord, we cling to that promise now and trust that you will reveal to us what you would have us to see. We come and give our attention to you as an act of worship and praise. And you are worthy of every aspect of our life. We offer our prayer through the name of Christ, who is the Word incarnated, revealed in your very Word as well. Amen. So so this is one of the most beautiful passages, at least in my opinion, in all of the Old Testament, because the storyline is one that is not only historic and vision, but it is also the storyline for every one of us. What we see here beginning is, as the vision, is Joshua the high priest. It's the beginning of this vision that... So Zechariah, not just the Lord speaking to him, but in whatever way the visions came to him, he was able to peek into a scene that was taking place, or the Lord would have him to see, of the way things function in heaven. And standing there, the primary focus, at least, of of this vision was Joshua the high priest. Now, in all of Israel's history, there were good priests, there were bad priests. The priesthood, and if you read through the Old Testament, in many ways had been corrupted, and you had... Uh, people who were responsible for leading God's people in worship, and yet they were, rather than feeding, they were fleecing. They were living in order for the, for the praise and the wealth that they were able to get. Joshua was not one of them. Joshua was actually considered one of the great faithful high priests. He was a man that sought God. He was diligent about his work as a priest, wanting the people to experience God's grace and wanting the people to give to God the glory that he deserves. And so here we have this picture of Joshua who is standing there, and yet it's a relatively stunning picture because the description that we have of Joshua who is standing there, and as you look in verse 3, says, here's Joshua that is standing before God in filthy garments. And actually the language would suggest that the filth is not just somebody who has gotten crawled out from fixing his car, uh, but also would be dung, excrement that he had been... Uh, in the field, which would have totally made him 
impure and unworthy to be approaching God. This would be shocking both for, for Zechariah and for any of the believers, any of the people of God at that time, because the high priests, when they are functioning, and Joshua was standing there in his robes, the robes of the high priest were majestic robes. They were spotless robes. They were ornate robes. It would be akin to what you might see the Pope wearing if he is uh, out on display. It would be as spotless as a bride on her wedding day. In addition to the garments that, the, uh, that he would be wearing, the priest, before approaching God, would always ritually purify himself because recognizing that he's broken, he would go through the rituals prescribed by God so that he would be considered capable of coming before God. And yet Joshua would have done all of that at any time he was going to be approaching God, and yet we have this picture here that's describing him as standing before God as if he is in filthy robes. What we need to understand here is that Joshua is a picture of the best that humanity has to offer. He is faithful, he is godly, and he has gone through the process of purifying himself, and yet compared to the holiness of God, he stands there as if he is in filthy rags. The best that humanity has to offer is still unclean in comparison to the holiness of our God. And that's not the only thing that is stunning, because if you, if you read the very beginning, Joshua is not standing there before the Lord alone. In a rather surprising statement, Satan is standing there as well. This is one of several occasions that we find in the Scriptures where Satan apparently has access to God. And Satan is standing there prepared to make a case, an accusation, against Joshua the high priest. He wants to bring his accusation. He's ever accusing. He's always condemning. And here we have to believe that he had a strong case because Joshua, regardless of how he may have purified himself, the fact that he's impure before God would suggest that there would be reason for the accusation. Nowhere in here do we see that whatever argument he was going to make is refuted. The only thing that is offered in this passage before a word is said is, isn't this man like a brand or a stick that is plucked from the fire? In other words, there was a statement that was given, but it wasn't one that was really justifying for, uh, for, this, for uh, um, Joshua. It just simply was a statement of fact, an explanation of perhaps why he was so filthy. Just like a stick that would be in a fire and all the char and everything else that would make something, that was not an excuse, that was an explanation. And so whatever Satan had to say, it might have very well have been valid. He had a strong case to be making against the best that humanity has to offer. Nevertheless, one of the things that we need to note here is before Satan was allowed to utter a word, the Lord told him to shut up. He ruled his case out of order and wasn't even going to consider it. And the reason being, it's related to the, isn't this man a brand that's pulled out, is because we're told this is Joshua, who's the high priest, who has been chosen of God. And we need to understand that regardless of the reality of the condition of God's people, those who have been chosen by God, who are loved by God, who have been redeemed by God, who belong to him, no accusation can be leveled. It is, cases are already closed. 
God will not hear those accusations against his people. Joshua the high priest, not standing on his own merit before God, is standing on the basis of the grace of the Lord. You and I also need to consider how that, because you and I, as we prepare to come to this table, are a people that no matter how well we cleaned up on the outside, no matter how well we prepared ourselves to come for worship, we still have the reality of sin impacting our minds, our hearts, our lives. It's infecting us in every way. No amount of our purification or cleaning up is sufficient. Any accusation that Satan would want to make against us is probably valid. But the same statement that is being made here is made, of, uh, is made to Satan about us. The Lord is telling him to shut up. The case is ruled out of order. We know that not merely by just saying, see, this is what happened to Joshua, but because the Lord has revealed it through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, in verse 1, we are told, there is now, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And later in that chapter, in verse 33, the question Paul asks rhetorically is this, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God that justifies. So who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who is now interceding for us. You see, whatever you feel this morning, you are free to feel the weight of your sin that we've confessed earlier, but we continue to confess, acknowledging our own brokenness. It doesn't make us right in the sense that we are pure in our own efforts, but by the grace of God, the accusations cannot be made against us because we have the covering of God's grace through the act and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The weight that you feel if you are trusting in Christ is removed because the accusations cannot be leveled against you. We also need to see not only Joshua the high priest here, but we need to see the sovereignty of our God at work as well. As we look in this particular passage, and going back again to um, the, the, the verse that, that tells us in, in, in verse 2, the, um, that uh, this man is a brand, a stick that is plucked from the fire. What we're seeing here is God's sovereignty and his right in the work of salvation. The fact that the best of all humanity is like a stick that is being plucked from the fire is an indication that all of us have sinned, all of us have fallen short, certainly this man has, and we are all therefore deserving of hell. We all are deserving of experiencing the torture of the fire. That's the condition that is for all of humanity. And Joshua, who is the best of humanity, has to offer, he is no different. That's what he deserves. And yet, what the Lord says is, this one, chosen of God, was plucked out of the fire. Now think about the imagery that is being used in here. Think about a stick. How many sticks that are in the fire have said, you know what, this is getting a little hot, I think I'm getting out of here. A stick doesn't do that. A stick is dead. A stick is just a piece of wood that has fallen off of a tree. It makes no decisions. It doesn't decide to do anything. The only way that the stick is spared being in the fire is if someone greater, someone who has ability and has authority and is able to, takes and chooses to pull the stick out of the fire, which is what God is saying is true of Joshua here. That's the defense. Not that he's better than you think, not that he's trying hard, but his flat-out statement, this stick 
I pulled them out. And the thing that is significant with, that we need to recognize here is Satan, who is always trying to confront, always trying to deceive, doesn't utter a word about it. The reason he utters no word is because God has the authority to choose who he will choose, to save who he will save, and secure who he will secure. And he has chosen Joshua and all those who are like him, not because of any worthiness of their own, but simply because God has chosen to pull those sticks out of the fire. His authority to do this, his right to do that, is unquestioned. God is sovereign in his choice and in his actions. But now we move to the portion which to me makes this the most beautiful passage, among the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament. It's what I would call the the exchange. And in this we see not only significance, but I find a little humor in parts of it as well. Because as Joshua was standing there, the angel of the Lord, that some scholars would say would be a pre-incarnate Christ, says, we're going to remove the filth from him. Take off, and he orders for the filthy rags to be taken off of him, and then he's going to be clothed in that which is pure and spotless. The humor comes in because this seems to be somewhat of an interactive vision, which is unusual in the scriptures, mostly a vision, somebody sees it, God is speaking to them. But in this vision, you've got Zechariah who is seeing the vision, and the angel of the Lord who is at work through, um, through his servants to clean Joshua up. And Zechariah chimes in and says, give him a hat, too. I mean, essentially, give, you know, don't just clothe him in wood. Give him a hat. And so we see him entering into this vision. And the angel of the Lord says, okay, give him a turban. Put a turban on as well. The end result is that from head to toe, this man who was standing before God, filthy, is now pure and is reflecting the holiness of God, not by any action of his own, but by the initiative and the authority of God himself, who takes away that which is filthy and clothes in that which is pure. We need to understand that this is also our story as well, if we are those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. Because no matter how we strive to be good, to follow God's rule, we are not good enough that we can approach God with our own merit and our own holiness. We stand before a holy God as if we too are filthy, except that God doesn't look at us as simply being filthy if we are those that he he has chosen. As a side note, how do we know if we are those who are chosen? Because we trust in the gift that he's given us of Jesus Christ. And what we see happening here for Joshua in in the vision or historically is also what happens to us spiritually. We are chosen not because we are clean as a condition, a cleanliness is not a condition of our coming before our God, but we are chosen when we were filthy, when we were unworthy to come before God, and having taken us and claimed us as his own, plucking us from the fire, he then begins to work, and we have that which is filthy taken from us, and we are clothed in what is righteous. The scriptures tell us that there's a great exchange that takes place for the lives of the believers. Because Jesus Christ actually took upon himself all of our filthy rags. He wore the filthiness that we were wearing, that we actually are. He put that upon himself and then volunteered to experience the punishment that we deserve because of our filthiness. And even as he took upon himself our nature, our sin, 
we are told that we now, as we trust in Christ, are clothed in his righteousness. We are made declared spotless, despite the fact that there's nothing meritorious in us. So here we see lived out the picture of our experience when we trust in Jesus Christ. We acknowledge that we are broken and unclean. We come before God at his invitation and his sovereign impulse. He takes us who are unclean and makes us, declares us to be clean on the virtue of the fact that he who knew no sin, who was clean, then became as filth as guilt on our behalf. It's a beautiful picture. And as we prepare to come to this table, it's one that we need to remind ourselves of. Because the table that we come to is not for those who are clean, but those who recognize that they're not. It's not for those who promise to do better those who know their only hope is to rest in what God has promised and what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. This passage goes on. It reminds us that there are promises that are also attached. Because as we pick up again in verse 6, the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus the Lord of, uh, of hosts says, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So the first promise that is made is saying, now that I have claimed you, now that I have purified you, if you'll continue and if you will walk in my ways, then I will give you the right of access to the presence of God. Now we need to understand what it means to walk in his ways. Certainly here is a charge, a challenge that we would be a people who live our lives in accordance to God's law. But also is always throughout the scripture recognizing that we do not live according to God's law. And so walking in his ways is not only a commitment to walking in his ways, but is a humility along with that commitment that recognizes that we continually fail that we never measure up on our own, and we are always in need of God's grace. And so all of life is lived out in both repentance and faith. The faith which enables us to walk with him, the repentance which is the confession that we don't do so perfectly or we do so with imperfect motives. But we walk in his ways, and the promise for those who have made that commitment is that we can be in the presence of God. We see a second promise that is being made in this passage as well. Verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, they are men who are a sign. Behold, uh, we'll just, I'll stop with that. What does he mean that they were signs? Well, a sign is something that points to something else. The men that would have been friends of Joshua would have likely been the other priests that were, that he, those were the people he hung out with. And the fact that there was a priesthood in this reestablished, nevertheless, unbuilt town is a sign to all of the people that God is still at work and he is keeping his promises to bless his people. 
the fact that there was a priesthood is a sign that God was blessing his people. But we're also told by Peter that we have been chosen and turned into a royal priesthood. And we too are a sign as a people of faith and as we come to this table. We are a sign that points to something else. It's important that we understand that the sign does not point to itself. And too often in the church, particularly in the evangelical church, we are guilty of saying, hey, look at us and become like us. And then we wonder why people don't want to have anything to do with us. But the fact is, the promise is for those who are called by God and are faithful in walking in his ways, which is not only in obedience but is in humility, we become a sign pointing to something else. We point to the grace of our God that comes to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And that is a sign that is sent to all the peoples of the world because there's no one who is beyond the grace of God. There is no one that is beyond the ability of God's grace to save, and there is no one that is beyond the need of God's grace for salvation. We, as we come to this table, which itself is a sign pointing us, reminding us of what Christ has done on our behalf, the very fact that we come and acknowledge our need of this, our need of grace, we become a sign to the entire world of the holiness of God, of his grace that calls people who are not worthy but nevertheless are loved, and his faithfulness to continue to provide and to strengthen and to nourish. By the very act of eating and drinking in faith and repentance, we are assigned to all who are here and to all who know. We see another promise as well that ties all of this to the table. Because all of this is rooted, we see at the end of verse 8, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Which is a reflection, a reference to the person of Christ. It is a promise that Christ would come. It is a promise that Christ would be cut off. It is a promise that he would be hung on a tree. It is a promise that he is the fulfillment and the hope and the object of all of our attention. So as we come to this table, we want our attention to be turned to recognize that we are a people who are blessed, not because we are good, but because God has chosen to love those who were once his enemies. And he's demonstrated that by granting us the gift of faith, that we can believe in his provision and not in our accomplishment, and therefore be forgiven, be declared clean, given access to the presence of God to become a sign to a world that is longing for hope. We are able to taste and to see all of God's promises when we come to this table with minds focused and committed to the reality and the truth and the substance of the gospel.